Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Hebrews chapter 11. So what I want us to do before we jump into Hebrews chapter 11, I want us to do a little bit of review because we've been in the book of Hebrews since September. And it's good to kind of go back and think about the overall flow of thought that the writer of Hebrews is addressing. And so let's just go back to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 through 14. And I want to um, just show you guys and remind you of these warnings that the writer of Hebrews... So let's just way backtrack. What is the purpose of the writer of Hebrews? Why is he writing this letter? You guys remember... These are Jewish Christians who are tempted to fall back into Judaism or even pagan Romanism, pagan mythology, but probably more so Judaism. And he's writing them saying, don't fall back into that Old Testament way. Jesus is better. That's the whole point of really the whole point of Hebrews is that Jesus is better than all that the Old Testament has to offer. It was a type and shadow. It had its purpose, but now that Jesus has come, He is better. So look at Romans 3, 12 through 14. I mean Romans. Hebrews. Where did Romans pop into there? Um, Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So what's the warning? Don't what? Fall away. Hold fast. Okay, so he's saying don't fall back into Judaism. Don't fall away. Hold fast to the confession of faith. Okay, go to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, 11 through 12. I'm sorry, let's go back to, I'm sorry, Hebrews 4, 4. We skipped one. I'm not reading. Hebrews 4, 4. That does not make any sense. Um, why do I have Hebrews 4, 4? Oh, let's, I'm, I'm probably 4, 11. Okay. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that none may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Remember the whole Hebrews chapters 3 and 4? It was about um, unbelief and the whole idea of that generation of Israelites that um, disobeyed God in the the wilderness and they had to wander for 40 years. And he's warning them not to do the same thing. Um, Hebrews 6, 11 through 12 We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You know, endure to the end, hold fast to the end, don't fall away. Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10.23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold to our, our, our hope without wavering. Hold fast. Don't waver. Don't crumble. Don't fall. Go down to verse 32. 
um, through 39. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. Okay, don't shrink back. Don't fall away. Hold fast. That's what he's saying all along. And so there's this temptation or this fear, if you will, to crumble to be sluggish, to fall back, to fall away, to not hold fast to the end. Okay, so that's really the, 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 um, the context. And so when we get into Hebrews chapter 11, we look at these Old Testament characters. And last week, if you remember, we looked at Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And now tonight, for the majority, we, we may get to um, Joshua and, and, and Rahab and Jericho, but we may not get there. It's in the notes, but we may not get there. We, we mainly want to spend time on Moses tonight. And so there's a lot that you can say about Moses. L- let's just talk about what are some things you guys know about Moses. What do you know about Moses? Okay, so he was, he, the Exodus, he was the one that led the people out of the Exodus. Okay, that was a big event, right? He received the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. Twice. Twice. What else? He never got to go into the promised land. Okay. Okay, his parents were from the Levites. What was Moses' upbringing? He grew up in an Egyptian home, even though he was an Egyptian. Okay. Um, there's four phases of Moses' life. Do you guys know that? What are the 40, 40, and 40, which makes it how old was he when he died? Do your math. 120, okay. The first 40 years of his life, where did he live? In Egypt. Until he murdered, and then he had to flee. And for the next 40 years of his life, where did he live? Midian. He lived really pretty much on the back. Hey, guys, he lived on the backside of nowhere, okay? I mean, he lived basically, that's where God approached him in the burning bush. He was a shepherd. And then where did he live the last 40 years of his life? with over two, 2 million people that really caused him a lot of problems as he wandered around there. So he had a very eventful life. And so there's a lot of things that the writer of Hebrews could focus on Moses. There's a lot. But let's just look and see what he actually focuses on. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 11. This is part one tonight. Um, Hebrews chapter 11, 23 through 27. So let's read Hebrews 11. 23 through 27. By faith, when Moses was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid, the key word there, of the king's edict. By faith, when he was grown up, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. 
By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. What word is used twice there? His parents were not afraid, and he was not afraid. So the thing that Moses is being talked about here is the fact that he did not have he did not have fear. What's going on in the life of this Hebrew congregation? They are living in fear of the pressure of Judaism, fear of their culture, fear of all these pressures around them, so much so that they're wanting to fall away, they're wanting to not hold fast. And so the writer holds up Moses as a model here of someone who did what? Held fast to the end, didn't fear in the face of temptation, did not fall away. Okay, so let's just put it in a sentence, what authentic faith is. Authentic faith that we see here in these passages in Moses does not crumble in fear in the face of overwhelming opposition. Okay, so, and I've already mentioned this, the key word in verse 23 is they were not afraid. What's the key word in verse 27? They were not afraid. So this idea of not being afraid or not crumbling in fear in the face of overwhelming opposition serves as the overarching theme of Moses' life. Okay, So from this text, from these verses 23 through 27, we're going to see three distinguishing features of this faith of Moses that doesn't crumble in fear. Okay, So what's the first thing that we see in Moses' faith, and it's really not his faith, it's his parents' faith. It's interesting. Here's number one. Faith, authentic faith, requires radical courage. In verse 23, the writer doesn't focus on Moses yet, but on the radical courage of his parents. What does it say there? By faith, when he was born... His parents hid Moses for three months. Okay, what's the big deal about hiding Moses for three months? Why, why, is that, why does that show such faith? Well, let's go back and find out why. So, as we've done the past few weeks, keep your finger in Hebrews. And this time we're not going to go back to Genesis, but we're going to move into Exodus. So go back to Exodus chapter 1, verses 15 through 22, and we will find out what's going on here in the birth of, of Moses. Exodus 1, 15-22. So, it says, Then the king of Egypt, that's Pharaoh, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one who was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? They kind of lie a little bit. (laughs) The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with the midwives and the people multiplied, or dealt, dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son 
that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Okay. Now, there's two ways the little boys could go into the Nile River. What do you guys know about the Nile River? Crocodiles, hippopotamuses. They could, I mean, think about, that's infanticide of the worst sort. Just go throw the kids into the Nile River. Either let them drown and get eaten by crocodiles or hippopotamus. And, that, and they were threatened. And so that was the edict of the day. The edict went out and said, you are to kill all the baby boys that are born to the Hebrews. Okay? Now, we see two things about Moses' parents' courage. It, the, the writer of Hebrews says that they saw that the baby Moses was beautiful. Isn't that what it says in Hebrews? It says right there, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because... Why did they hide him? Because he was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, what in the world does it mean that he was beautiful? Let's keep reading. Let's read Exodus 2, 1 through 2. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she saw that he was a fine child, he was beautiful. Here's what it really means. Like back in the Hebrew text, when he was beautiful, it really means attractive, pleasing. He showed evidence of good breeding. It probably meant something. There was like there was something striking about Moses right when he came out of the womb that just caused his parents to be like, this, this is a different kind of kid. By the way, do you guys know what Moses' name means? Drawn from water. That's what the word means, drawn from water. And we'll find out later on why he's called drawn from water. But there was something about him. So there was more to Moses than he was just a cute baby. We don't know what caused him to be beautiful. He could have had like a distinguishing birthmark. I don't know. The the text doesn't tell us. But there's just something about Moses that caught his parents' attention. And even Stephen says it in Acts 7.20, At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. So here's the thing. We really don't know this, but there was something about Moses that his parents knew. It's shrouded in mystery, but acting on the basis of faith, his parents somehow knew that this boy would be special in the eyes of God, so they hit him. Now, whether God supernaturally worked in their hearts and minds to say, you need to hide this boy, but there was something, the writer, both in Exodus and in Hebrews, it tells us that he was, there was something striking about Moses, and that was one of the reasons why they hit him, that there must have been something about this boy that God had special plan for him, okay? But the second thing that it tells us was what? They were not afraid of the king's edict. Now that takes a radical faith, doesn't it? We are not going to be afraid of what the king says about killing these young boys. So they they had some radical um, courage. Let's talk about radical courage for a moment. Because it's kind of a tough issue. In your lives tonight, or today, or tomorrow, 
Think about how you may have to show radical courage. Now, none of you are going to be strung up for your faith or, you know, beheaded. Nobody's going to come in here and burn our church down. But what are ways in which you as a Christian in 21st century America, northeastern Colorado, are going to have to have courage? Could it be that when somebody at work begins to tell dirty jokes and you just, you have a choice to make? What do you do? What happens when they make fun of Christians or they ask you to go along with the crowd? There's times in our lives where we've got to show courage and not back down. And so that's what Moses' parents are doing here. They were not afraid of the king. They did not fear man. They trusted God. They said, we're going to put this little boy in the basket and trust God to take care of him. And that's what was going on. You know the rest of the story of Moses. He, he actually is providential because who gets to raise him? His daughter. Is, yeah. And so it, it's a good, good situation. Okay, let's go back to Hebrews. I keep having to switch back and forth. I know it's Hebrews chapter 11. And what's the other thing it says here? Here's the second feature of Moses' faith. And this is not, the first one was more about his parents. The second feature we see from the faith from Moses is that authentic faith suffers loss to gain Christ. What does it say there in your text? By faith, verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. It's interesting there. He was willing to suffer loss, pain, reproach to gain what? Christ. Now let's go to Exodus chapter 2, verses 3 through 10, and let's see what happens here. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. That's taking a risk too. I mean, with crocodiles and hippopotamus just putting, I don't know how many moms would put their baby in a little, like a little Noah's Ark thing, like a little basket thing and just send him down the river. God's sovereign. That's, that's a lot of faith, isn't it? Okay, so they stick him down the river and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. It must have been somewhat safe because you wouldn't be bathing in the river if there were crocodiles and hippopotamus, but, but you never know. So anyway, she's down there bathing in the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew children. How did she know he was a Hebrew child? Very practical. The kid's circumcised. Okay? <laughs> okay? Egyptians weren't. That's how they knew he was Hebrew. It wasn't like... That was, that's the only way they knew he was a Hebrew child. And the text doesn't tell you that, but I mean, we, we know that Hebrew children were circumcised and, and Egyptians were not. So, the sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. 
And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she became her son. And he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So basically his mom gets paid to be his mom. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) Okay. So Moses means drawn out of water. So here's the thing that happens, though. Moses was adopted, if you will, into the very court of Pharaoh. And what that meant was that he had all the treasures, pleasures, and stuff that Egypt had to offer. He grew up in royalty. He had access to great wealth, great popularity, great power, and possibly could have even been poised to take a very high position in the royal family. And yet Moses does something very strange. Look at verse 11 of chapter 2, Exodus. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Okay. It says this. Did you catch it? When he was grown up, Moses went out to his people. Now, what in the world does this mean? Most scholars have traditionally seen this as Moses' definitive decision to leave the court of Pharaoh and go back to his people, the Israelites, and be one of them. Which would mean what? I'm living as a slave and not in the court. He went out to his people. Because they were Hebrews. He knew, he, knew who they, I mean, he knew who they were growing up. He knew who he was. His identity wasn't hidden from him. He knew he was a Hebrew. Well, he would have been nursed possibly until three or four. Yeah, he would have been nursed until he was three or four. His mom would have told him. Um, and it could have been his mom said, the Bible didn't tell us, but his mom could have said, Moses, don't you dare tell anybody who you are. Um, but, you know, knowing that he's a Hebrew child. I mean, they knew he was a Hebrew child. I mean, the, the, um, the court took him in as a Hebrew child, so it wasn't like it was a big secret that he was a Hebrew, that he was adopted into the family. So it wasn't like a big secret. So can I ask a question? Yes. I'm trying to understand. Um, so you said that his mother became his mother. I don't understand that. No, got paid. Oh, she got paid to be his mother. Yeah, his okay. yeah, it's kind of a plan words. Okay. Yeah, yeah, his mother, yeah, his mother, be, his mother became his mother. No, his mother got. <laughs> yeah, that was would be really hard to understand. What did he mean by that? Um, he, his mother got paid to be his mother, type thing. Okay, because for a second I thought you were meaning it was his mom. Kind of lost on that. <laughs> do, do you understand now what I mean? Okay, okay, yeah. I sometimes I talk fast, so I will I will slow down. Okay. Now. The writer of Hebrews tells us that he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter. He refused it. The word refused here really means to disown or renounce. He disowned disowned his royal upbringing. He renounced his wealth and power and prestige to live as a slave among his own people. Now, think about what we've been looking at in Hebrews all along here. He said wholeheartedly, I'm leaving the royal family to go live as a slave because I want to identify with my people. This would have been a direct indictment on those in the Hebrew church who had abandoned the church out of fear of wanting to be associated with Christians. What was going on back in chapter 10, verse 25? 
Go back to Hebrews 10.25, just the, verse, just the chapter right before Hebrews 11. What, what was the writer urging them and, and warning them about? What, what was the problem going on in the life of the church? Hebrews 10.25 Actually, let's start in verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What was going on in the life of the church? They were not meeting together. They were forsaking the meeting together. They were, there were some in the church that had become their habit to be embarrassed to be a Christian. And so instead of assembling with the believers, they decided to stay home because they didn't want to be identified. They didn't want to have to suffer. But what did Moses do? The exact opposite. I'm going to leave the royal court. I'm going to leave all that the world has to offer. And I'm going to willingly go out and refuse to be called Pharaoh's son, the daughter of Pharaoh's son. And I'm going to willingly identify with my people who at this time were slaves. Now, think about that. How many of you would do that? Especially as a young man. He had all the women he could want, all the food he could want, all the wealth and all the power he could want. And he said, I'm not going to take that. I'm going to go be like a slave because being part of my people is more important than the treasures of Egypt. Word to the church. Being part of God's family among God's people, no matter what cost you, is more important than being part of the world. And that's kind of the decision that Moses made. So he chose a life of suffering over a life of ease and a life ultimately of sin. What do we know about Egypt? We know from the Exodus that the Egyptians were ruthless taskmasters who beat the Israelites, made life hard on them. They were brutally mistreated, and Moses knew full well what it meant to leave the pleasures of Egypt and to go be mistreated as an Israelite slave. Now go back to Hebrews. Look at verse 25, because I want to spend some time on this, because I think it's important. Chapter 20, I mean, verse 25. He chose to be mistreated with the people of God. What does it mean to be mistreated? To be beaten, taken advantage of. Rather than what? To enjoy the what? Okay, I want you to, I'm going to pay attention. I want you to pay attention to these words. There's, a, there's an adjective put before it, fleeting. There's a description, pleasures of sin. Okay, so here's what I want you to look at. The word for enjoy in the original language means to hold on to, to regard, to cling to. He didn't want to hold tightly to the fleeting pleasures of sin. Moses had every pleasure at his disposal. But here's the thing. The writer of Hebrews is blatantly honest about the nature of sin. What does he call it? He calls it pleasurable. It is pleasurable. Don't let anybody tell you sin's not fun because why would you do it if it was not? Sin inherently, at first glance, promises pleasure. Why would you sin if you didn't think it gave you pleasure? Nobody here wouldn't sin if it didn't feel good. In our flesh, we sin because we think it's fun. But notice the word he puts before that. Yeah, it is fun. But what does the word fleeting mean? What does the word fleeting mean? Passing. Temporary. Literally, the word in the the Greek text is for a season. So here's the thing. For a season, sin is fun. Until it catches up with you. 
For a season, sin may be pleasurable. You may get a lot of quote-unquote joy out of doing it. But what does sin ultimately reap? What does Paul tell us in Galatians 6, 7, and 8? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So here's the question. What was the ultimate sin? What was the ultimate sin Moses well that's not worded very well. What was the ultimate sin Moses would have committed had he stayed in Egypt? The very same sin these struggling Hebrew Christians were struggling with, idolatry and apostasy. He would have engaged in a life absent of God and living for his own pleasure, and he would have denied the very people that gave him birth. He would have shrunk back in fear and stayed in comfortable Egypt rather than being who he truly was, an Israelite who feared and worshipped the living God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Moses understood the nature of sin. Moses understood that, yes, sin promises pleasure. Promises pleasure. It may be fun for a season. But what does it say that Moses would rather do? He would rather be mistreated. He'd rather be part of God's people. He'd rather not apostatize, fall away, and, than to give in to those, those pleasures of sin. Verse 26 He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. What in the world is the reproach? Come on in, guys. What in the world is the reproach of Christ? The reproach of Christ. Do we we use that word a lot? What does reproach mean, the reproach of Christ? Do we use that word reproach? The closest thing I can think of is maybe what Paul says in Philippians 3, 7-8. Paul says, whatever gain I had... I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, dung, in order that I may gain Christ. So, Moses here is saying, Christ is more important to me than anything this world has to offer. As a matter of fact, all that this world has to offer is scubalon. That's a word you need to learn. It sounds like Scooby-Doo. <laughs> scubalon. It's the Greek word there. It's kind of like a PG-13 word that Paul uses. It really means like dung, um, refuse, rubbish. rubbish. Um, it's not a cuss word by any stretch of the imagination, but it is kind of a, a, a uh, crass word that he uses. And he says, everything I've gained, everything that, that, that I've accumulated, I just consider that a loss compared to knowing Christ. Now, that's what Moses did. Moses said, I'm giving up all that Egypt has to offer. And what did Egypt have to offer? Sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? (laughs) Money, power, prestige, popularity, all this stuff. And Moses says, you know what? I'm willing to give all that up to suffer with Christ. Now, did Moses have the full understanding of what that meant, that Christ would suffer on the cross? I don't think so. But he was willing to go suffer with his people in holiness as an Israelite as opposed to taking in all that 
Egypt had to offer. And so, and, and why did he do this? It, it, the text tells us. Why does Moses, there's a very strong reason that Moses did all of this. Why in the world, here's, the, here's a huge question, why in the world would you renounce your royal upbringing? Why would you leave the treasures of Egypt? Why would you go live as a slave? Why would you suffer loss so that you could have Christ? Well, the scripture tells us there. Look at verse, the end of verse 26. What does it say? For he was looking to the reward. He was looking to the reward. The word looking there really means constantly, concentrated effort. Heaven was always on his radar screen. What's the reward for Moses? Was it being, what was the reward for Moses? Hey, I get to be number two in the, in the, in the kingdom. I get to have a harem of Pharaoh or, you know, Egyptian women at my disposal. I get to have all the money. What was the reward for Moses? What was he looking forward to? All throughout Hebrews, what's the, what's the looking forward to? What is it? The promised land, God. Okay, but in chapter 11, what, what, what specifically? It's called heaven, but they call it a better country. A better country whose builder is God. I mean, obviously he was looking forward to heaven. Now, Moses never did get to go into the promised land. Think about this for a moment. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses... And even Joseph, his bones were. None of those guys ever got to like experience the joy of being in the promised land. But did that matter to them? Because where are they now? The true promised land. They're in heaven enjoying Christ. Okay? So, it's heaven. Here's what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's being a good pastor to his church. He could have gone to them and said, listen, guys, you're wimpy, you're sluggish, and, you know, bring guilt and condemnation on them. But what does he do? He says, we have a great example in Moses. Think about what Moses did. It's, it's, he's basically saying Moses did not give up. If you're willing to give up, if you want to go back to your life of sin, if you want to fall away, if you want to apostatize, look at Moses because he considered everything. And, and think about all that he had that you don't, you don't have. He had Egypt. And he threw all that away to gain Christ. And so that was what the writer of Hebrews is trying to encourage them with. Okay? So number one, Moses' parents' faith was fearless. They did not fear the king. Number two, Moses' faith is one that says, I'm going to renounce my whole upbringing and all the wealth of Egypt for Christ. I'm going to go be treated as a slave. But here's the third feature of Moses. He endures through overwhelming opposition. What does it say in verse 27? By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Verse 27, left Egypt and did not fear the king's rage. Okay. There's some debate about what's talking here. What Did Moses leave Egypt twice under the rage of the king? Sort of. What was the first time Moses left? He left as a fugitive and as a murderer. 
What was the second time he left? On the Passover, on the Exodus, when they're walking. And both times, the, the second time it really specifically says that the king was angry. So really what I think he's talking about here is, is this leaving behind. Egypt means really to abandon and forsake. Um, think about the Passover for a moment. Um, Pharaoh's, we'll get to this in just a moment, but Pharaoh's son had been killed. And he rises in great anger and wants to charge after Moses and the Israelites as they're leaving. So I think what this means is, it's talking about the actual exodus itself. When the, being hotly pursued by the king after the ten plagues and the final plague of the killing of the firstborn sons of um, Moses and the nation. Um, but Moses didn't do that. He, he and the people did that on his own, didn't he? Just no, God killed them. God, we'll get to that in just a moment. God killed all the kids. Well, the angel of death. This is what Moses says in Exodus chapter 4, 14. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see them again. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. What did they have to do? Quietly walk across a sea that had parted. Isn't that interesting? They weren't told to fight. They weren't told to yell. They weren't told to do anything, but Moses says, just trust the Lord and be quiet. Let's walk across this sea. God will take, God will take care of us. Um, the striking thing about Moses' faith here and all that he dealt with is that he persevered. What did he persevere through? It says there, Moses endured by faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured. He endured. What did Moses have to endure? Well, think of the you know, facing Pharaoh, confronting him ten times, the ten plagues. I mean, it took great stamina and perseverance and endurance to keep going before this hard-hearted king and asking him multiple times, let my people go. It could have been very easy for Moses to give up after, like, plague number five. This king's heart is hard. God, are you really going to let us go? You know, are you, can, can you really be twist, trusted? Okay, seventh plague, eighth plague, ninth plague. What about after number one? Yeah, after number one plague. Yeah, because the people are like, yeah, yeah, I mean, all of the stuff that, if Moses didn't get it from Pharaoh, he got it from the people. <laughs> And even from his own family at times, like his sister, um, and even his brothers, like the golden calf. It's so you think of all the things that Moses endured in his life um, in the face of overwhelming oppression. But, but how did he endure? What does it say there? Seeing him who's invisible. That, that's a good lesson. How do you endure? If somebody were to come to you, how do you endure? I see him who's invisible. What? <laughs> It's biblical. Now, how do you endure? I see him who's invisible. What do you mean? Well, what does that mean? Okay. <laughs> who's he talking about here? God. Okay. Can we see God? Anybody here seen God? I'm going to talk to you afterwards if you've seen God face to face. He's the invisible God. Even Paul tells us that in 1 Timothy 1.17. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 
Here's how you endure. He's invisible to, to us, and yet when faced with trials and hardships, we trust in what we cannot see. We trust in His invisible hand of grace and power to work. Now, it's interesting. Of all the things that could have been said about one person in the Bible, what do we know about Moses that he got that nobody else got to do? He got a glimpse to get a glimpse of God. Okay, so I find it interesting that because if there was anyone who was able to catch a glimpse of God, it was Moses. He saw God in the burning bush. He saw God envelop him in a cloud on the mountain. He was able to see the backside glory of God. He saw the pillar of smoke, the pillar of fire. He saw the parting of the Red Sea. He saw the manna and the quail and the water come out of the rock. What more could you ask from God? But what does it say here about Moses? Why did he endure? He endured because he was fixed on the invisible God. The God who's not seen, but who is there. I think this is an encouragement from, to us who didn't have all these wonderful manifestations of God. We walk by faith, not by sight. We serve the invisible God who can never be seen, but whose power and presence is always there when we need Him. So how do you endure? You keep your eyes on Him who's invisible. What's a better way of saying it? We walk by faith, not by sight. And that was the, the faith of Moses. Even though he saw all these powerful manifestations of God, he still trusted in the invisible God. So what are the implications for the struggling church? What's the deal here with this church? What are they encouraged to do? They're encouraged to endure the persecutions and the hardships and the imprisonments even when they can't see this great God. Go back to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. How does this whole conversation start? Hebrews 11.1. 1. What is faith? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's the conviction of things not seen. We can't see God. We can't see Jesus. But by faith, we know He's there. We know He's true because of His Word, because of His power. And the way we live our lives is in that faith of, of the conviction of what we cannot see. And this church needed to know that as they were facing overwhelming obstacles. So here's the issue. It is only this invisible God who can give us the power not to crumble in fear and face of overwhelming opposition. Where were Moses' eyes fixed? Where could they have been fixed? Egypt. Moses could have had his eyes fixed on popularity, prestige, all that in Egypt, but his eyes were fixed on the invisible God. Okay? And this gives us great hope because in Romans 8, 31 and 32, What shall then we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Okay? So that's part one tonight is the faith of Moses. Moses' parents... Moses, and now let's look at just one verse, but it packs a punch, and that is verse 28. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. There's a lot there, but here's what authentic faith is. Authentic faith trusts in God's provision of a substitutionary Atonement. 
we see two things about Moses here. It just says he kept the Passover, he sprinkled the blood. He kept the Passover, he sprinkled the blood. Okay, let's go back and read what the Passover was all about. So let's go back to Exodus chapter 12. And this is the key passage in the Old Testament about the Passover. Um, it's just a tradition that Ten Commandments is shown in Easter time in, in American. I don't know if there's a biblical mandate to, to watch that, but that's... Uh. All right, so let's go to Exodus 12, um, 1 through 13. Here's the Passover, so you guys know kind of what's going on here. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb, according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if a household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Okay, so does everybody know what's going on here? Get a pure, spotless lamb for your family. If you, if you, you, know, if you can't afford it, some families can go in together. You keep the baby lamb in your family for 14 days. He's a cute, cuddly lamb. The kids get to love on him. He's like a family pet. And then after two weeks, you've got to kill the guy. So, I mean, it's kind of hard for the... If you have little kids there, it's like, oh, no, we're going to kill our pet. But that's what happens. After 14 days, at twilight... You go kill the lamb. But here's what happens next. Four days. What? Um, Yeah, I'm sorry, four days, yeah. From the 10th of the month to the 14th of the month. Um, So, verse um, 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of the raw or boil. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Okay. The Prince of Egypt? Yeah. Yep. That's, that's what this is from. Yep. That's uh, Steven Spielberg's version of it, but it's from the same story. So, Here's the first thing we need to understand, and this is a difficult concept for some people, is that God is a God of justice and will execute His wrath against sin. What does He say there He's going to do to the pagan idolatry in Egypt? I will execute judgments on the gods of Egypt. I will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Now, this may alarm you or make you bristle that God executes, that God would literally kill the firstborn of the Egyptians. Some people look at this and think, this is, 
I can't believe in a God that would do that. This God sounds unfair. This God sounds merciless. This, why, would, why is it fair that God would kill the firstborn children of the Egyptians? Well, here's the, here's the, here's the issue. In order for you to truly understand the beauty of the good news of Jesus, you need to come to grips with the fact that God is absolutely holy and He has every right to incinerate us off this planet in judgment and He would do none of us wrong. I've said this many times in our church. If you don't understand these two concepts, God has the right to save His people and to judge His enemies. You don't understand the Bible. I mean, that's, that's the whole storyline of the Bible. God saves His people and one day will execute judgment on his enemies. That's just the way God is. He's a God of love, but he's also a God of justice. And here's where we see love and justice meet together, because what God does is, in this provision for the Israelites, God makes it very clear there's a provision, there's an answer. What's the only way you are not going to experience God's justice against your sin if you're an Israelite? What's the only answer? What is it? It's very simple. Blood. Blood of a lamb on your lentils and doorpost of your house. Okay? There has to be a provision. There has to be a substitute. There has to be a blood sacrifice. Now, I want to challenge your thinking here for a moment. Before we get too comfortable at thinking that Egypt truly deserved what they had coming, they beat those, you know, they beat those Israelites. They had it coming. Let me ask you a question. Was Israel any less guilty? Did they have any merit that made them acceptable to God and worthy of salvation? Were they more spiritual or more religious than, than the Egyptians? Not necessarily. <laughs> they proved it over and over. Okay? Okay. The point is, when we stop and think that somebody else deserves God's punishment and we don't, that's a, that's a bad place to be, isn't it? Because then we're starting to say, I'm not, I'm not as bad a sinner as the guy down the street. And the, the Israelites could have very easily said, you know what, those, those scummy Egyptians, they, they, they deserve what's coming toward them. And what does God say? I could incinerate you just as easily for your sin, but I'm providing an atonement. I'm providing a sacrifice. I think the opposite is true, though, too, Sean. I think that if somebody from Egypt would have sympathized with the Israelites and said, what are you guys doing? And they would have said, hey, we're doing this because God told us to do it. I personally, it's just my belief. Sure. I have no... Sure. I, I personally believe that the Egyptian family could have been spared mm. that, too, if they would have followed. That's a deep issue. So is, like, atonement word for, like, another way... Atonement, and we'll talk about atonement. Means that Jesus, in the Old Testament, atonement means that an animal was killed as a way to pay for the sin of a person. And so, when Jesus died on the cross as an atonement, it means He, in His death, paid the price for our sin that we deserve to experience. Because the wages of sin is death. When you sin, and I sin, I, I'm not saying you sin and I don't. Any human that sins, the Bible says, what we get, what we deserve is death. So every sin deserves death. So instead of dying on the cross ourselves and having to suffer ourselves, as a substitute, Jesus dies in our place on the cross so that we don't have to take that punishment. But it has to be received by faith. That's what an atonement is. It means 
Someone dies as a substitute. Jesus dies as a substitute in our place, shedding his blood so that we don't have to experience that death and that, that judgment of God. That's what God was providing for them. In the Old Testament, it was a picture of a future reality of what would happen with Jesus. So at this time in history, the lamb and the Passover, that was God's time frame in that time to, to provide a provision of, of atonement for the Israelites during that time. Yeah, yes, Michelle. So the Bible doesn't tell us that. That the Bible doesn't answer that question. The Bible does, and so I mean, my personal opinion is that this is an atonement specifically for the Israelites that He didn't provide because if God would have provided for the Egyptians, it would have said it. But again, it's an argument from silence. We really don't know. Um, we don't know. I mean, if, if there was a case where the Egyptians did it, it's not in the Scripture. So we're we're making it as we're making a conjecture. We're making a guess from silence. All we do know from the text is that God made the provision for the Israelites and gave them the instructions and that they were the ones that were spared. That's, that's all we have. We, can't, we can guess, but at the end of the day, the Bible doesn't give us that much information. Is that, is that fair? Okay. There's some things the Bible just doesn't answer for us, and we just kind of have to say, you know, at the end of the day, it's my best guess of maybe how it happened, but it's not explicitly taught. And so you just kind of have to say, this is kind of where I land on it, even though I can't you know, find it dogmatically in there. This is kind of what, what I sense it to be. But, but you have to, at the end of the day, say the Bible doesn't absolutely address that. So, um, where are we now? Oh, Exodus 12, 21 through 32. Let's, let's see the actual execution of the, um, the, the, the instructions were given. And now they actually carry it out. So um, in Exodus twelve twenty one through 32, we actually see it hap- unfold, okay? So let's see it unfold. Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel of the two doorposts with the blood that's in the basin. Now, this is important. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. What else was required of them? Not only blood, but they had to stay inside. They had to stay inside. Okay, and that's going to be important later on when we get to Rahab. Okay, for the Lord, if we get to there tonight, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses and the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, and he and his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up! Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord, as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. So here's what happens. At midnight, 
Whoops. At midnight, the Lord strikes the firstborn in all the land of Egypt, even Pharaoh's own child. Now, think about the deafening and chilling screams of agony throughout Egypt right after midnight. What does it say there? There was a great cry. Why? There was a dead child in every home. That's devastating to parents. I mean, I mean it's, and even Pharaoh, this, this, all the plagues up at this point really didn't affect Pharaoh. I mean, sort of. This was personal to him because it was his very own son, firstborn son. Okay, who was an heir? Male. Yeah, I think it says firstborn male. Yep. Um, the text says there was a great cry. God's full wrath had been poured out on the Egyptians, and they were in agony. They were in horror. So much so, they called for Moses to get the people up out of there as fast as they could. Now, how many plagues were before the Passover? Nine. Okay, nine plagues. If you go back and you read the story, these nine plagues presented no danger to the Israelites. Do you realize where were they? They were in the land of Goshen. They were spared the nine plagues. They only came upon the Egyptians. But notice the tenth plague, the Passover is different. What's the condition in the night of the tenth plague? What would happen if Israel had not put the blood on the doorframe? They would lose their firstborn too. So there's a provisional, conditional atonement here that's, that's being done. The plague is conditional. The firstborn of the Israelites were not automatically saved from death. There had to be, by faith, the sprinkling of the blood. What were the conditions? A lamb had to be slaughtered. Its blood applied to the doorframe of the house. The firstborn of the Israelites would die if these instructions were not followed. So when God passes through Egypt, what must he be able to do? See the blood. When God sees the blood, he will pass over. And our text in Hebrew says that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. The them right there is the Israelites. Only when God sees the blood will he not touch the Israelites with judgment. If he, does not, if he, sees, if he doesn't see blood, what is the destroyer going to do? Okay. So could there have been an Israelite who said, Yeah, Moses, I don't really buy this thing. This destroyer coming at midnight, we're safe. They could have very easily not gone and killed a lamb, not put the blood on the doorpost, and just kind of like went out there and looked at the fireworks to see what was happening and disobeyed everything. What would have happened to their child? Dead. Because they did not, by faith, trust in God's provision of atonement. Okay? God provided it. They had to, by faith, trust in it. Okay? Let's think about more deeply here some issues related to... um, And so what I'm trying to say here is that Jesus' death... Let's make this into Jesus' death. Jesus' death on the cross saves you from sin. But you must, by faith, what? Trust and believe in Him. Okay? So when you trust in Christ... Here's a trick question. When were you saved? What? I'm hearing different answers. Okay. What are you saying? I didn't hear what you said. When were you saved? Oh, when I trusted in Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. Okay. When were you saved? When the Holy Spirit came and 
Okay. Okay. There's different ways you can answer that question, okay? In the past, before the foundation of the world, God chose me for salvation. 2,000 years ago on the cross, Jesus died for my sins. At a point in time when I personally trusted Christ for salvation, I was saved, and there's going to be a future day when I'm in heaven when I'm fully saved. So we can think of salvation as past, present, and future. So it's kind of a trick question. But the point is this. If you don't trust in the substitutionary atonement death of Christ, will you be saved? No, you have to believe in that. Okay? So there has to be personal faith in the sacrifice. Just like the Israelites had to personally go kill the lamb, do what God told them, put the blood on the doorpost. By faith, they had to sprinkle the blood. They had to, by faith, believe what God had provided in the atonement. Okay? If they hadn't have done that, they too would have been just as easily destroyed. Okay. I saw a question over here. Was it Tiffany or Scott? Yes, ma'am. Mm. Yeah, Ju- well, yeah. Passover, when Jesus and his disciples celebrated the Passover, um, which he basically reinstituted as the Lord's Supper, um, they were celebrating Passover. Okay? We don't celebrate Passover. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. Jews to this day will celebrate the Passover because they're still waiting for their Messiah. Jesus took the Passover and he fulfilled it as the Lamb. And he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And so he took the Passover and has now brought it into the new covenant in his blood. And so as Christians, we celebrate communion of the Lord's Supper, which is patterned after the Passover, but it's not like... And I'll talk about this in just a moment, an interesting thing. I'm going to talk about the relationship between the Lord's Supper and the Passover here in just a moment. Michelle. Yeah, this is the first Passover. Yeah, this is the first Passover that God instituted in the Old Testament, and they celebrated it every year, even up to Jesus' time. But when Jesus, right, right, when they celebrated it right before he died, that was the last real Passover because he had come in the flesh as a lamb of God. He's died on the cross and now it's the Lord's supper or communion that we take in commemoration of his death as the final sacrifice, the one and only sacrifice for our sins. Does that, does that make sense? Okay. You see John saying, John the Baptist saying, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yeah. So Jesus is the last Passover lamb. Yes, exactly. He's, yeah, he's the last Passover lamb. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's think about, Let's think deeply about what was going on to, for the Israelites when they were um, in Egypt. Uh, they're delivered from two distinct things. Number one, they're delivered from the tyranny and bondage of Pharaoh. What did the Passover do? It delivered them out of bondage to a slave driver. Okay? And secondly, what were they delivered from? The wrath of God himself. Now let's think about us for a moment. John one twenty nine, what Joe just said, John the Baptist saw Jesus said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 1 Corinthians 5.7 says this, For Christ our Passover Lamb has been sacrificed. So let's just, let's just look at two things here. In, in the Exodus, in the Passover Exodus, The Israelites were delivered from what? Slavery and Pharaoh. 
And they were delivered from God's judgment or God's wrath. Okay, so that's what happened back then. Would you agree? They were, they were delivered out of slavery. And if they had not put the blood on the doorposts and lentils, they too would have been, their firstborn would have been killed. God would have executed justice on them if they had not done that. Okay. Now, if, Christ, if that's what happened in the first Passover, and Jesus is the final Passover, let's think about these two things in a spiritual capacity. Spiritual bondage. What have we been delivered from? Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Who were we in bondage to? Our flesh, Satan, children of wrath, spiritually dead. What has God saved us out of? That. He saved us out of spiritual bondage out of spiritual enslavement. In Israel, it was physical slavery. For us, through Christ our Passover land, it's spiritual slavery He's delivered us from. What did He rescue us from? Colossians chapter 2, 13 and 15. Um, whoops, going too far here. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. He disarmed Satan. Pharaoh's kind of a Satan figure. Who was Pharaoh? A wicked, hard-hearted man who kept God's people in bondage. And God delivered them from him. Who's Satan? A wicked, hard-hearted, fallen angel who tries to tempt and, and destroy. And God, when you're a Christian, God saves you out of spiritual slavery. So here's the, here's the parallel. Just like God delivered the Israelites from the tyranny and bondage of the Pharaoh through the Passover, in the same way through the death of Christ, He disarmed the devil, triumphed over Him by forgiving all of our sins. Through the cross, we've been released from captivity to Satan and we've had our sins forgiven. Earlier in Hebrews, the writer tells us, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who were through fear of death were subjects to lifelong slavery. Now, I was pondering something when you think about the, um, the Exodus for a moment, when you think about the Passover. One thing that God tells Moses to do it's, they were commanded to keep it as a continual meal. You will keep this forever and ever. To do this every year as a memorial of God's passing over the Israelites and sparing them His judgment through His substitutionary atonement. Now, if you read the rest of the Bible, did the Israelites celebrate Passover? They tried to. And then like, in, in like during the time of the kings when they got really wicked, and then what was it, uh, Josiah... Under his reign, they go in there and they find the book of Deuteronomy. And they're like, oh man, we haven't been celebrating the Passover. We better get busy doing this. But for the most part, if you trace Israel's history, if you read the rest of the Bible, um, they, they were celebrating it all the way up to the time of Jesus' time, right? Okay. So it was a constant reminder to them of what? A substitutionary atonement by blood. But there's one thing in the Passover they never repeated. 
Do you, do you want to know what they never repeated every year? I looked at my Bible. I can never find this. When they repeated the Passover, what's the one thing that they didn't repeat? Exactly. Not once are they told to put blood on the door frames of their house. That sprinkling of blood was a one-time, non-repeatable act of faith where God would pass over their houses. So the Passover itself was a one-time, unrepeatable event, but it was commemorated each year in the celebration of what? You kill a lamb, you eat it, you celebrate bitter herbs, but were they ever told over and over again to, to put the blood on the doorpost? Okay, now think about that for a moment. It was a one-time, unrepeatable blood sacrifice that's commemorated over and over again in the celebration of it, but it's not done but once. Now, you should be thinking the same train of thought I'm thinking here. Jesus' death on the cross as our sacrificial substitute was a one-time, unrepeatable event. He has been crucified once and for all for sin. But yet in the Lord's Supper that we celebrate, we're commanded by Jesus himself to continue to do this as a memorial of his death. Just like the Passover meal is to be repeated. In correspondence, the Lord's Supper is to be repeated. And both of these are a memorial of God's deliverance through blood sacrifice. And yet the blood on the doorpost was a one-time event, just as Christ's death on the cross is a one-time event. You see the parallels there? One-time blood sacrifice to cover their sins but to be celebrated over and over again. One time blood sacrifice of Jesus to be commemorated over and over again in the Lord's Supper. Okay. Now, go back to Hebrews 9, 11. Go back to Hebrews 9. We looked at this back before Christmas, I think. Um, Hebrews 9, 11 and 12 But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered how many times? Once and for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. It is a one-time, unrepeatable, once and for all, eternal redemption. Go down and look at verse 26, chapter 9, verse 26. For they would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So how many times did Jesus die? Once. It was perfect. It is finished. It's the once and for all ultimate sacrifice for our sins. The Lord's Supper is a commemoration of that. It's a remembrance of that. But it's not the Roman Catholic Eucharist. We've talked about this before. What's the Roman Catholic Eucharist? Yes, the vicar of Christ, as the representative of Christ, pulls Jesus down from heaven onto the table and they crucify him afresh each time that they take of the body and the blood and they literally believe they're eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood. And he's a victim being pulled down from heaven and they are crucifying him again every time they take the Lord's Supper. Now, most Roman Catholics probably don't know what they're doing when they take you know, the Eucharist, but that's their official Catholic teaching. Okay, that that totally blows away this whole one-time sacrifice. Listen to how Jesus interprets it. When he's doing the Lord's, when he's doing the Passover, what does Jesus say in Mark 14, 22 through 24? And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing and he broke it and gave it to them and said, take this, this is my body, 
And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And then what does Peter tell us about Jesus being the lamb, the sacrificial lamb? 1 Peter 1, 18-19, Knowing that you were ransomed, that means purchased or bought, from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. What were you bought with? The precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Yes, ma'am. Where did that crazy idea come from? I mean, how what crazy you... idea? The... the Eucharist? Yeah. I don't know all the ins and outs of how the whole idea of transubstantiation, which is the official term for it, <laughs> comes from. But it is an interpretation of when Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, they take that to be literally, not, they don't take it metaphorically. For example, when Jesus says, I am the door, is he literally a swinging door? No, it's metaphorical. When Jesus says, I am the gate for the sheep, okay, is he literally, okay, when Jesus says, this is my body, is he literally saying, you're, you're to be, you know, eat in my flesh literally, or is it, is it a symbolic way of him reenacting what happened in the Passover before? So I think it's somewhere along in the Middle Ages when all this was being codified in the Roman Catholic Church and through the Council of Trent and other things. I haven't boned up on that enough to know how that all came about, but it's probably a misunderstanding of the, of the symbolic language that Jesus uses in those um, Last Supper passages in Matthew does that help you, Lori? Well, I think they take the story after Jesus fed the 5,000 across the lake. Yeah, and Matthew. And they came and saw him, and he says, well, you're going to have to eat my flesh and drink yeah. my blood. I think that's where they, they kind of hinged that on. Yeah. That's the first. Yeah, in John chapter 6. Yeah. Yeah, so it's really a misunderstanding of the symbolism behind what Jesus means when he talks about feeding on his flesh and drinking his blood. Short answer. Okay. So here's a... Th- they just choose to pick a literal... Yeah. Yeah, they choose to pick a literal interpretation of that when the rest of the like verses around it, you wouldn't. Like Jesus is a door. I am the bread of life. Is Jesus a loaf of bread? <laughs> I am the light of the world. Is Jesus a literal light bulb walking around? No. Okay, so there's metaphorical language that's used in the Gospel of John and other places that you're meant to read and be like, oh, okay, I'm supposed to take this metaphorically. Let me just go with this. On that final day, on that day of days, when God himself, the absolute sovereign king of the universe, who's absolutely holy and righteous and perfect, passes over your life, what will he see? Will he see the blood of Jesus in your place because you've trusted in his only provision of your sin? Or will he not see the blood of Jesus in your place? And if there's no blood, if there's no substitute, if there hasn't been any trust in the only provision God has provided... It will be far worse than Pharaoh and the Egyptians drowning in the Red Sea. It will be God's full wrath poured out on you in hell for eternity. So if you're here tonight and you've not trusted Jesus for salvation, that provision of atonement, then make sure you do that because it's, it's a life or death. So, All right. Um, Let's stop there because we're switching gears. What time is it? We're we're switching gears in verse um, 
29. Um, 29 is basically a summary statement. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Okay, that, that's basically the, what happens next, the drowning. Okay? But what happens next is the walls of Jericho come down and Rahab. And I want to spend some time on Jericho and Rahab because I don't want to unpack that because Rahab is an awesome story about how God loves to save bad people. And all of us are bad people. So God loves to save sinners. And we see that in Rahab. So we'll wait for that next week.